Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, also known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple of months off the podcast for work. Soon as he's back, we'll jump right back into the weekly Song of Ice and Fire podcast with Sansa's third chapter, In a Storm of Swords. In the meantime, I've been picking up where I left off last time with J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Last week, I wrapped up Book 5, Chapter 1, Minas Tirith, and this week we're jumping into Book 5, Chapter 2, The Passing of the Grey Company. So like I said in the Minas Tirith chapter, Book 5 is a bigger, better sequel to Book 3. And so just like in Book 3, Tolkien keeps jumping around in space and time in Book 5 to capture all the different stories running parallel to each other, before they come crashing back into each other at the Pelennor Fields. So this chapter rewinds past the previous one, right back to where Book 3 ended, with Gandalf and Pippin riding off, the sonic boom of Shadowfax's magical hooves echoing into the distance. We know now that they're going to find Minas Tirith in big trouble, desperately in need of help from the characters they just left behind. So here we see how that coming to the rescue thing is going to work, and at first, it seems like it might not. This is a chapter all about dread and melancholy on first read, with the seeds of hope only clear in retrospect. The chapter builds to a confrontation with the dead, and the very title of the chapter alludes to death, the passing of the Grey Company. Like these characters are passing away, all the colors of life leached out, leaving only Grey. The remaining members of the Fellowship are all far from home, emphasized when Tolkien writes that Mary barely has any possessions left to carry. They're standing at a crossroads. Their mission is not so obvious as Gandalf's, and so they have to decide what to do next. The Rahiram, by contrast, do have a clear task. Theoden's got his muster going at Edoras, and after that, as Aragorn says, they're probably going to ride right after Gandalf and Pippin, down to Gondor. And to the first-time reader, it probably seems like that's what our main characters should be doing too, right? Just go with them. But Aragorn immediately calls that into question. He's going to Minas Tirith. He just doesn't know how best to do it. Like Frodo saying, he'll go to Mordor, except that he doesn't know the way. Aragorn is caught between destiny and free will. He knows that the return of the king is, quote, an hour long prepared, but he also knows that his hand is on the tiller as much as the Almighty's, and that he, Aragorn, is 100% capable of fucking everything up forever if he makes the wrong call. It is dark before him, he says foreshadowing of the paths of the dead, but also referring to the agony of choice, like that faced by Sam in the darkness of Shelob's lair. There is no light guiding me along my path to the future, and his doubt only grows because Gandalf, the closest thing to that light, is gone. Aragorn has to do this on his own. Well, not all on his own. Legolas and Gimli volunteer to go with him without even knowing where they're going. And that's true friendship right there forged in their race across Rohan in Book 3. What matters isn't where the road leads us now, but that we continue to walk it together. As everyone heads back to Helm's Deep, they're suddenly accosted by mysterious riders out of the north. Tolkien does a great job building up the suspense with imagery, describing the glint of the moonlight, the shadows of the pursuers emerging. It's meant to make us think of the Black Riders hunting the hobbits early on in the story. But it turns out these men 
are the opposite of the Black Riders. They're not Aragorn's enemies. They're his friends. His fellow rangers come south to join him. Aragorn's mopey long face gives way to joy, at least temporarily. He's God's lonely man, as we've seen him so far. Always standing out, whether among his fellow mortals like the Rahirim, or with the elves he loves. A foot in both worlds and not fully at home in either one. Up to this point, that's been an effective part of Aragorn's character, emphasizing his unique qualities relative to other men, like Boromir or even Eomir. But that lone wolf framework isn't going to work for the return of the king. He needs to move on from Strider, at least partially, before reconciling his two halves in Book 6. We have to start integrating Aragorn into a community larger than just the Fellowship, and that begins here, appropriately with men he knows and loves the closest thing to a family he's ever had. Aragorn was a structuring absence in the previous chapter, as both Gandalf and Pippin were trying to keep the potential return of the king secret from the city he will come to change. Now the focus shifts to him, which is important because he's about to vanish again for the next several chapters. We need to ground him here, so his victory later carries the weight it should. The Dunedain haven't come alone. They're accompanied by the sons of Elrond, Eladan and Elrohir, standing in for Aragorn's connection to the elves, the lingering threads of the Last Alliance. So with joy comes responsibility. Aragorn has to reforge that alliance, like the blade that was broken, which means descending into the very literal dark places left behind by his ancestors. He's confronting his own mortality in the process. When the sons of Elrond pass on the message from their dad that Aragorn should try the paths of the dead because the days are short, he says his days have always run short to achieve his desires. There's a double meaning there. He's talking about not only fulfilling his duty to his people before he dies, but also his desire for Arwen, a relationship always haunted by the fact that his days run shorter than hers. Men and elves have different relationships to death because they have different relationships to time and Arwen's willingness to cross that border is bittersweet. It's embodied in the gift she sent south with her brothers, the banner Aragorn will unfurl for the dead and then in full at the Pelennor fields. And it's also in her message, either our hope cometh or all hopes end. And I gotta wonder if it was awkward for the sons of Elrond to watch the expression come over Aragorn's face of, wish I was somewhere boning your sister in safety. Eh, they've been around a while, they've probably been in more awkward situations than that. Then we get a brief interlude with Legolas, Gimli, and Merry, in which they talk about Aragorn's new comrades, and Gimli wishes that he and Legolas had their own surprise parties with friends coming to join them. But Legolas turns out to be right when he says that the elves and dwarves have their own battles to fight now. As Baragond said in the last chapter, this war extends well beyond the central showdown of Mordor versus Gondor. We don't directly see those other conflicts play out, but it's a good reminder of their importance and it also raises the suspense. No one else is coming to help us. This is it. On reread, we know that the hobbits of the Shire are also facing their own troubles at home, and we will see how that plays out, in which Merry plays a central role. Then we get a wonderfully written scene with Merry and King Theoden, and this is such a, a direct contrast to Pippin's introduction to Denethor. This scene is all about love and humility, two things sorely lacking in the steward's court of Gondor these days. Theoden apologizes that this isn't Edoras. They can't sit around getting high and telling stories like he promised. But he makes Merry his squire, giving him a sword and a pony. Merry acknowledges that he has been feeling like baggage again, 
losing Pippin and not knowing why, feeling all these big decisions being made without his understanding or consent. And so he loves Theoden for honoring him. A father you will be to me. And Theoden responds, for a little while. Theoden literally means that he's only taking Mary as far as Edoras, but it's heartbreaking on reread when you know the second meaning, that Theoden will soon die. It's an acknowledgement that death is inevitable, and so we must be good to one another in the time we can. They'll never get to sit in Edoras, and when Mary comes there only to visit Theoden's grave, he sobs for a little while. Love is painful. Loving Theoden means being prepared to lose him, whereas Pippin does not mourn Denethor. Time is always against us, and the house always wins. Our time together is a brief flicker, but that's what gives it power. That's what the elder races always envy in the younger ones in this story. And the rangers from the north, in an interesting way, they kind of cross that gap, making them the literal gray company, the blurring of these two worlds. They wear no fancy fabrics, they have no jeweled sword hilts to mark them out as the highest order of men. For them, it's not about how you look, but what you do. All that is gold is not glitter. Their only ornament is brooches of silver, shaped like the star of the Silmarils, the star of Elendil, to remind them. They look like ghosts, every bit as much as the literal ones. The sons of Elrond are all grey as well, and so is Aragorn. Merry is startled to see him. He seems to have aged years overnight, as if he finally looks his age of 87. We don't find out why just yet, but the mood is unmistakable. It's like we're sinking into a grave. And so Aragorn says he must part from the Rahirim and walk the paths of the dead. Again, we don't know what those are yet, but just in case the name Paths of the Dead didn't tip you off that this is a bad, bad place, the reactions of the Rahirim would let you know. It's that ghost story reaction. The riders go all pale, Theoden trembles, and Eomer is crestfallen, saying he had hoped to ride into battle with Aragorn, but now fears they'll never see each other again. Aragorn, though, with his newfound gift for foreshadowing, says they'll meet again on the battlefield. And so they will. This is our farewell to Merry for the rest of the chapter. He's been our POV up to this point, and we get one last moment with him where he, he feels small, that he doesn't understand what's going on. But Halberad of the Rangers says that innocence is exactly what they're fighting for. Not everyone should have to be a survivalist badass just to make it in this world. And so the Rangers cherish that the Shire folk don't even know of the sacrifices made for them. Same thing Aragorn said at Elrond's council at Rivendell. And after all, as Halberad says, the hobbits have their own sort of strength. So the Rohirrim ride off to their adventures in chapters 3 and 5 of this book, while Legolas and Gimli stay behind and ask Aragorn, Why are you so fucking glum all of a sudden? Shake off the shadow, Legolas says, but he's more right than he knows, because Aragorn has passed into the shadow. He just stared down the eye of Sauron in the Seeing Stone. This is a huge deal in terms of both character and plot. In terms of character, Aragorn has revealed himself to Sauron, and he says he did it in a form other than what we see here, a true kingly form that we won't fully witness until the fields of Cormallon, after the ring is destroyed. And when Gimli freaks out about Aragorn doing this, Aragorn responds, you forget to whom you speak. And a shiver passes over you as you go, ooh, this is, this is a different man than the one we've been talking to. This is something he has kept partially hidden from us. It's Aragorn's equivalent of Gandalf going from the gray to the white, in that he's changing who he is in the eyes of his companions. But for Aragorn, his future is just more gray. 
I had the right to look in the stone, he says, but only barely the strength. Like Gandalf fighting the Balrog. In terms of plot, this is so important, because when Sauron learns that the heir to Isildur lives and bears the sword, he freaks right the hell out and accelerates his plans. This turns out to be why his armies are so suddenly on the move at the end of Book 4, because he wants to destroy Gondor before Aragorn can rally the country against him. And so this is an ambiguous moment for Aragorn, fitting the, the gray theme of this chapter. On one hand, he has made the threat more urgent. They have even less time to deal with the Corsairs that Aragorn also sees coming, the ones that were mentioned in the previous chapter. So it feels like Aragorn has just put Gondor at even more risk. But, as Aragorn says, the hasty stroke often goes astray. Treebeard would agree, don't be hasty. And Sauron does inadvertently doom himself by moving so quickly. Aragorn says he knows a way they can deal with the Corsairs and still show up to Minas Tirith in time, but it means walking the paths of the dead, conscripting ghosts into battle. It's a prophesied moment, Aragorn says, describing it as the return of the forgotten people in the gray twilight. Well, that sure sounds like the rangers to me. They're mirror images, those who betrayed the faith and those who kept it, both isolated from everyone else. It's an ancient oath, ties that bind like Pippin's oath to Denethor. These men swore to fight Sauron with Isildur, but failed to, and so were cursed. They could not die. They became ghosts like the Ringwraiths. And it's interesting that Isildur prophesied that the war would come round again, they would be called upon to fight. I wonder if he knew what part he would play in that, in the need to fight another war, because he kept the ring. The Lord of the Rings is all about time and the characters have to reckon with their awareness of time, what it means to move back and forward within it. The irony here is that Isildur betrayed his cause far more than these men under the mountain did. Aragorn is redeeming not only them, but his own ancestor, who proved to be a hypocrite. Thou shalt be the last king, Isildur declared, and you shall be summoned once again ere the end. He could have been speaking about his own line, that it would dead end in the south, before the new king was summoned again from the north. The Grey Company arrives at the mountain refuge of Dunharrow, ahead of the king, and there they meet Eowyn. We last saw her being left behind as her uncle's great shining host rode off to do battle at Helm's Deep. And you gotta imagine, she's been chafing ever since. This part of the chapter is all about her eyes, the windows to the soul. Tolkien writes that her eyes rest on Aragorn and they shine when she hears about the battle in Book 3. But she's not happy about what he says next. I ride for the paths of the dead. And I love how Tolkien writes this. After Eowyn has been calling Aragorn Lord throughout the scene so far, she now starts calling him Aragorn, her shock and fear leading her to drop the formalities and speak to him as one person to another. She says that if he seeks the dead, he will join them. Which is also what her brother and uncle fear, that Aragorn has basically lost his mind and is going on a suicide mission. Ironically, they're the ones motivated by the death drive. We'll see that with all three of them, Eowyn, Eomer, and Theoden, at the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. Their devotion to the glory and charisma of the warrior is necessary for the fight ahead, but it's not the ideal of stewardship that Gandalf talked about in the previous chapter. Aragorn is descending into death to preserve life. No other road will serve, he says, as with Moria and Shelob's lair. He's not doing it to live out a song, prove himself a badass. As he says, he does not choose peril. Were it up to him, he'd choose love, and would still be in Rivendell 
with Arwen. This is also Aragorn's way of trying to subtly let Eowyn down by hinting at the other woman in his life. But Eowyn comes to him again that night. She's dressed in white, symbolizing purity and innocence and so forth. But her eyes are on fire, desperate to break out of that image, act to save that which she loves. It turns out, Eowyn doesn't really want to stop Aragorn so much as go with him. He's taking a separate road from her family, after all, who would never permit her to come along. Aragorn frames this as a question of duty versus desire. He says her duty is to stay. She was ordered to safeguard her people, and it would be a betrayal of both the family and country she loves to do otherwise. Her individual desires don't matter any more than his. But, she argues, that's a false comparison. Aragorn is getting to choose how to act on his duty. Eowyn always gets the same job. Look after the house while the menfolk are away, winning great renown, and then she gets to take care of them when they come back. It's a routine that never changes, and it has nothing to do with her as an individual. It's just a domestic role she has to play. Aragorn shoots back that the menfolk might not return this time, and Eowyn will have to defend her home and people. She won't win renown because the stories will all be over. No one will be left to sing of her valiant last stand, but that won't make it any less valiant. It's that no chance, no choice ethos. I generally love that existentialist perspective. You do it because it's right, not because you want fame and glory. But even more, I love how Tolkien pokes holes in it here. Eowyn says that Aragorn is just dressing up oppression in compliments. He's still telling her that a woman's place is the home, and so the home is the only place she could ever pick up a sword. And that's only in the case that the menfolk are all dead and will not need the home. Only then does she have permission to die in its defense. Eowyn loves Aragorn, as she hints when she points out at the end of this conversation that everyone going with him is doing so out of love. But I think she also just wants to be him. She's so desperate for freedom that she could beat herself bloody against the bars of the cage she speaks about so movingly. She valorizes the warrior's life because it's denied to her, kind of an inverse to how the hobbits relate to war. Eowyn fears not only being kept from the life she wants to live, but also that after a while, she will grow to accept her cage, that she won't even want to escape it. That's the real horror, the death of the dream. Aragorn is right that there are more important things than renown, but that's easy for him to say. He's already won some renown and will have the opportunity to win much more. Eowyn is right that she is being denied the chance to make the choices that eat away at Aragorn or Sam. It is one thing to doubt the choices you've made. It's quite another to never get the choice in the first place. And for all that the story displays a somewhat chauvinist perspective in terms of where Eowyn ends up, Tolkien clearly sympathizes with the unfairness of her situation here. When she comes to say farewell, she does so dressed and armed like a rider of Rohan, foreshadowing of her decision to ride as Durnhelm. She drinks from a cup and passes it to Aragorn. There's an erotic quality to it, would that you drink of me as deeply, but there's also a sacred quality, as though it's the Holy Grail. And again we see the dynamic between formal and informal speech. Aragorn calls her Lady of Rohan, an official goodbye, but she breaks down in tears and calls him by his name, begging to come along. Aragorn says no, because the authority to grant that request lies with Eomer and Theoden, and oh, he can't wait for them. It's clearly just an excuse, one that tears at his heart, as Tolkien writes. Aragorn rides into the darkness and does not look back, 
symbolically surrendering the intimacy he could have shared with her, as Aragorn, not a lord. Eowyn has turned to stone, as Tolkien writes, like life has already passed her by, and she's part of the past. She stumbles as if blind, walking her own figurative dark path to match Aragorn's literal one. But her people, the author writes, weren't watching this moment of vulnerability, and think only of the Grey Company as reckless strangers, even elvish whites who belong in dark places like that. These times are evil enough without them. It's a great way of capturing the ambiguity of perspective. After all, Merry was afraid of these strangers until Aragorn greeted them joyfully, and Aragorn himself frightened the hobbits at first, until they saw past his grim surface to the kind heart within. If you're a random citizen of Rohan, maybe these guys seem as frightening to you as an army of ghosts. And so we walk the paths of the dead. This is a gauntlet for Aragorn, like Moria was for Gandalf, and Shelob's lair was for Frodo, and even more so Sam. Tolkien keeps coming back to this structure, the, the deep dark cave where you prove yourself, because it's really effective. A dark place to reflect the doubt and despair in your soul. A symbolic confrontation with the titular Dark Lord, who never appears directly in the narrative. In all three cases, Moria, Shelob's Lair, Paths of the Dead, this is the domain of death. A locus of torment and transformation producing rebirth, although never without a cost. As is often the case with Tolkien's invented mythology, the reference points here are equally classical and Christian, and we're seeing the same mashup over in my Star Wars episodes for patrons. The paths of the dead are a descent into hell, limbo as the first circle in Dante's Inferno. In between the crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection, he went down to hell to free the souls of the just who went there before he could redeem them, or so the story goes. And that's known as the harrowing of hell. And, lo and behold, the area of Rohan on the doorstep of the paths of the dead is called Dunharrow. Aragorn is about to die for our sins and be reborn in glory as the righteous king of kings. But a descent into the underworld should also remind us of Greek mythology, the journeys of Heracles and Theseus and everyone else who went down there, and all this chapter's references to lore embedded in ancient songs also feels like Tolkien paying tribute to Homer. And beyond that, there is also a gothic flair to this section, especially in terms of mood, adding to the Greek and Christian undertones. Tolkien's playing all the hits, and his vision of fantasy as a melting pot for basically every kind of story he likes, that persists in the genre, for better and for worse. The Haunted Mountain is a showcase for Tolkien's mastery of atmosphere, everything rendered in bleak shades of black and gray. There's just something off about this place, like the Barrow Downs blown up to a colossal scale. This is where everything you love, everything that makes you who you are, is turned against you. Legolas loves forests, but can't stand the trees here. Gimli loves caves, but is the last to enter the mountain. So palpable is the sense of dread, a gray vapor, as Tolkien writes. My blood runs chill, Gimli says, exactly what Baragon said at Minas Tirith about the shadow of Sauron. The paths of the dead have that Mordor mood, fitting the corruption and fall of the men within. Even Gimli's words fall dead, Tolkien writes. Language does not belong here. They can't read the words above the dark door. The living do not belong here. The horses are terrified, requiring Legolas to speak in his magical horse girl language to get them inside. Animals freaking out, of course, is always a sure sign that something unnatural is about to happen, raising the suspense one last time for the audience. 
Gimli briefly becomes our POV here, as Merry was for the first part of the chapter. It's not as cleanly constructed as the last chapter, which was all from Pippin's POV, but each of them provide their own unique perspective here. In Gimli's case, Tolkien is focused on fear. Fear that has nothing tangible to attach itself to. Which only allows it to grow, filling the emptiness all around. There's nothing to see, but Gimli hears whispering all around. Like a story being endlessly told by, quote, an unseen host, sealing off the way behind. It's his equivalent of Frodo hearing Gollum's footsteps in Moria. Like Pippin said, waiting for battle is worse than the actual battle, because your imagination, left to its own devices, turns inward on itself. Even when the narrow path opens out to a wide open space, Gimli feels no relief, because the suspense is so unbearable. Gimli doesn't even want to chase after the glitter of gold. Again, that's how you know this is serious. Everything here feels cursed. And so naturally, they find a spooky, scary skeleton. Like Moria for Gimli's people, the paths of the dead had a seductive pull on Baldor, son of Brego. His father built Meduseld, the golden hall of Edoras where Theoden would have loved to tell Merry stories, and Baldor wanted to make his own mark on the stories by walking the paths of the dead. Instead, he died here, hewing at the rock in despair, the gilded gleam of his armor outliving him. No one to tell what had become of him. A year later, his father died of grief. It's a microcosm of the tragedy and folly of man, that which Aragorn must, at least temporarily, redeem. Drunk on our victories, we try to conquer death, the ultimate enemy, and fall from grace. This is what happened to Isildur. And like I said, Aragorn is here to make up for his sins, as well as those of the ghosts. Yet Aragorn mourns Baldur, rather than scorning his memory, because he understands what it's like to feel powerless in the face of death, of time. The way Baldur died ended his story. If he'd been at home, Aragorn muses, he'd be under a green mound with the rest, part of the narrative of the Rahiram. But now, no one will know why he died here, at this door. Tolkien wrote an unfinished story that explains it, but I love the ambiguity of this. It's the perfect sad note before we plunge back into horror. Aragorn can't change Baldor's story. That is not his errand, he says. Keep your hordes and your secrets, your past. Intervene in the present for the future. He summons the darkness, and the darkness answers, plunging them into silence with a chill wind. The journey out is so frightening that Gimli can barely make sense of it in his mind, like Sam fleeing the fist of the first man in A Song of Ice and Fire. All Gimli can hold onto is a dreadful presence, a living absence all around them driving them on. When they finally reach the exit, Legolas looks back like Orpheus, and his elf eyes can see the ghosts spilling out of the underworld, pale banners and spears like thickets on a wintry night. It's the return of the repressed. And coming back on reread, what's so interesting about this is that Tolkien barely focuses on the journey at all. He barely focuses on the actual paths of the dead. It takes place over a couple of pages at the end of the chapter. In part, this is to preserve suspense with regards to what happens next. And in part, I think Tolkien is following the same logic of monster movies. That which you only suggest, rather than show, becomes much scarier. But on this read, taking in the chapter as a whole, it also felt to me like Tolkien wants to emphasize the character drama provoked by Aragorn's decision, rather than the actual execution of that decision. There's a purgatorial quality here. 
like Aragorn is fully unleashing everything he's ever held back. Finally putting it on the line, risking all to win all. The stone where he summons the dead is a perfectly round globe, partially buried in the earth, half a world hidden from sight, like both the ghosts and the rangers. Many of the locals believe it fell from the sky, like it's an alien artifact or a gift from the gods. Those who know better say it came from Numenor, another fragment of the old world Aragorn must reclaim. The dead are still more of an absence than a presence here, their horns echoing Aragorn's, their faint voices on the wind. They work better invisibly, because they represent the weight of story and history, invisible but present all around us. That's what Aragorn is struggling with in this chapter. He unveils his banner here, but we don't see the sigils that blaze out so memorably at the Pelennor Fields. The darkness all around converts his banner to black, like Aragorn is in the Night's Watch now. For the moment, that is his banner. He has become the King of the Dead, terror at his trail as he races eastward at chapter's end. As Jung would say, in order to defeat the shadow, you have to access it, become it. In A Song of Ice and Fire terms, in order to reach the light, you must pass beneath the shadow. So I've been wrapping up these Lord of the Rings episodes by talking a little bit about the movie adaptations from Peter Jackson and company that came out around 20 years ago and how they handle each stretch of the material. And the Paths of the Dead section is not one of my favorite parts of the Return of the King the movie, but I still enjoy it and I don't envy the task of adaptation here. As I've been saying, the ghosts are more a function of atmosphere than anything else. A whisper in your ears, a tingling crawling up your spine. Tolkien structures the chapter around the idea of the dead, more than directly showing them to us. And that was not really going to work for the movies. The ghosts have to be more literal to make any believable impact, and there has to be some danger that they'll refuse to make it dramatic. So you have to fill up a cave with skulls and cobwebs, shoot it with Dutch angles, make it more like Shelob's lair, also happening early in the third movie. This is another case where it was good to have Peter Jackson at the helm, an old-handed horror who knows how to mix the spectral qualities of ghosts with the gross qualities of rotting corpses. It reminds me of this self-aware hulkiness in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies around the same time. And the ghosts look great in the dark, not so much in the light, as I'll get to in a later episode. What I really like about this part of the movie is how they tie in Aragorn's sword. They don't do the confrontation in the Seeing Stone, it probably would have come off redundant after Pippin, given that, unlike in the books, Pippin looking into the stone happens in Return of the King. Instead, the filmmakers ground Aragorn's character arc in the blade that was broken, which he's had the whole time in the books, but only shows up now. And I think that makes perfect dramatic sense. It's a great adaptational choice, enhancing the visual glory of it for the audience when Elrond pulls it out and the soundtrack gets all dreamy. It ties in the elves they've kept cutting to throughout the later movies without having to introduce a bunch of new characters in the Grey Company, focusing on Elrond and Arwen, people we already know. It cements the idea that this is Aragorn's part of the story. He's taking up the blade of his ancestors to redeem their sins and save his lady love. And that provides a great beat to build the confrontation with the dead around. The blade was broken. It has been remade. So that is going to wrap us up this week for Lord of the Rings. Thank you so much for listening. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf, where our patrons get exclusive episodes, early access, and a bunch more benefits. 
You can follow us on Twitter at NotacastASOIAF or shoot us an email at NotacastASOIAF at gmail.com. And you can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. Next week, we're going to pick up with Mary and the Rahiram after they rode off in this chapter, see what they get up to in Book 5, Chapter 3, The Muster of Rohan. So thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next week for more Lord of the Rings.